You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. Hounded by a relentless press, indifferent family, and those who would leak the most intimate details of her life, Princess Diana struggled to find her authentic self amid the chaos that surrounded her life. Well, during this period, no one ever knew Diana was meeting with a private voice and presence coach, Stuart Pierce, in the two years before her death. Working in secret, Pierce helped her find her voice and how to share with the world messages of hope, empowerment, kindness, and authenticity. Now, 25 years after her death, Stuart Pierce will share with us how he did it in his book, Diana, The Voice of Change. And Stuart Pierce's book details how Diana's legacy broke taboos, opened up hearts, and gave people the confidence to be themselves. And as for the Me Too movement, the book is also a workbook for women to be the voice of change in their own lives, learning from the princess herself under the guidance of our very esteemed guest today, a gentleman without equal, Stuart Pierce. Welcome to the program. <laughs> Namaste. Thank you for a wonderful introduction. I love the last line. <laughs> I, well, I, feel, I feel mighty and great. Well, I think in a way you actually are, and I'm looking forward to uh, this discussion about your book and about Diana. Mm -hmm. And I want to start off, uh, Stuart, that you worked with Diana for the last two years of her life. And in essence, that was, you know, in essence, what was she like and what was your first impression the day you met her? Well, I, the, the first, the day that I met her, I was invited to a lunch given by, um, as it were, a friend of hers who just happened to be one of London's great restaurateurs who, you know, it's 25 years ago. So unfortunately this lady has passed since then. Um, but this, this lady was called Mara Burney, and she owned a restaurant called San Lorenzo, and she was an immense patroness of me. She introduced me to some extraordinary people, including Madonna. Um, however, so here I was being invited to a lunch. It was a setup for me to meet Diana because Diana was really, as we know now, at the end of her career, but it really at the beginning of a new aspect of her career. And she had just completed the Martin Bashir BBC Panorama interview. And she had watched it and was slightly dismayed by what she saw of herself. But she felt that her message was profound and that she spoke about the things that she wanted to speak about. But she wanted to do something about her voice. She wanted gravitas. She wanted a center to her voice. She wanted to ease that slightly um, deferential or submissive look where she would look up and speak in a slightly breathy tone like this. She wanted to really find weight and resonance in her voice. And so Amara decided that I was the man for the job. And so we met over lunch. I was set up and here I met one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful being that I have ever had the fortune, the honor or the grace to meet. I mean, she was extraordinary. Yeah. That I absolutely agree with. And you bring up Martin Bashir, the, the interview, and all of us around the world have seen this interview. And when I looked at Diana, I saw someone who was fragile, 
someone that showed signs of insecurity, uh, that shyness was still there. And were those the things that she was wanting to overcome? Yeah, she was wanting to give impression that she was all of those things, but also an executive woman of the world. Well, how the did you help her? Di no, no, go ahead. Well, the point about the magnetism of Diana was really her vulnerability. I think that's what we're talking about. The frailty, the insecurity, the subtlety, the empathic nature of her being, that she was truly vulnerable. And in the early part of her royal career, of course, we saw that aplenty, and we saw it being hidden behind a mask of shyness. So she was beginning to really break forth, but wanted to acquire an elevated status as an executive woman of the world, meaning where she would be standing on unusual platforms, and she wanted to be seen to be totally the, the empowered individual that she was post-divorce from Charles, and if you like, the royal family. Well, how did you help her become <clears throat> confident, self-assured, which led her, and even at that time, to become the most photographed woman in the world? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I feel she was the most photographed woman of the world before I met her, to be <laughs> frank. Um, but how did she then suddenly radiate this extraordinary brilliance and broaden and broaden and broaden her energy so she looked more relaxed, she appeared to be more within grace, she expanded her, her trajectory in terms of what she, wanted to, what she wanted to achieve in the world, particularly around the charitable endeavors that she was involved in. I introduced her to her note that we each have a note and when we find our note we find the very center of our beings, because after all, sound is at the very core of creation. And so the way that we can create or recreate ourselves is by finding our note. And when we find our note, we find our power. And when we find our power, we find our brilliance. Well, what was Diana's note? Well, our note is in the very core of our heart. And if we talk like this, obviously we're not really in our, in our note. I mean, most of the Western world is educated to speak just here. Uh, and you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, if I go really into New York City, you know, we get a lot of this going on like this. But this is not speaking, and I'm not speaking in my note, I'm just speaking in my head. So if I move into my note, I move into my heart. Because that is the halfway point between the upper and the lower part of my spine. So if words arise from the heart, they enter the heart. If words arise from the tongue alone, they don't pass beyond the ears. Very, very good. Now let's, let's look at Diana. She being with the monarchy and then being out of the monarchy. And then at this time, you were helping her find her note. What was the public's perception and did they notice the change? Yeah, I feel if we look back at the videos of her presenting the speeches that she gave, the charitable awards that were granted her, we'll see that there's a very different presence. And one of the things that I really wanted to achieve with Diana was the fact that whenever she finished a sentence, she always went, she always used a falling inflection, da-da-da-uh, da-da-da-uh. Da 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 uh, da 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 uh, which always sounds slightly depressing to me <laughs> and is not a statement of power. Whereas when we're in a statement of power, what we do is we, we move on a rising inflection, 
which, for example, is something that I taught Margaret Thatcher. Margaret was one of my first big clients. When she became the premier, when she became the first female prime, uh, prime minister of the United Kingdom. So that was in the 1979-1980, when I moved, I sort of um, transubstantiated from being an actor into becoming a voice coach. Um, and so I showed Margaret how she could finish sentences on a rising inflection, which meant that she could never be interrupted. So this is what I was attempting to do with, uh, with Darling Diana. And uh, we got there. We really got there. So it feels as though you're absolutely in flow. And this means that the whole of the audience follow that level of flow. And we engage on a very magnetic level. Now that I'm looking back, you're going to have me go back and look at videos of Margaret Thatcher just so I can see that. And it's you literally have brought the movie The King's Speech to life and, and helping people like Margaret Thatcher, Princess Diana. Um, and it's amazing that just those elements of, of change can make that person become, well, more powerful and we know Mar Margaret Thatcher was a very powerful prime minister. And I know Diana, you know, had she survived, uh, mm. the world was at her feet. Mm. Literally, the world was her oyster. The world was at her feet. She was in a uh, trajectory of ascension, wasn't she? I mean, really extraordinary. And no doubt would have turned many of her charitable interests into major movies that would tell the story of the impact that had taken place on human life, you know, and the transcendent features of human life from victim into victor. This was something that Diana really wanted to do. Yeah, you see, our voices are really at the very core of our creativity. The ancient peoples knew this before we met noise, but you know, for, we've had noise around us for a very, very long time. The area of specialism that I have with actors is the, the world of Shakespeare, because I spent 15, nearly 20 years working within a project which was the reconstruction of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre um, in the same area that it would have been in 1597. And that, of course, that was before the noise. It was before the machines, effectively, except for the noise in our heads, which is overthinking and worry and anxiety, but before the machines. So therefore, during that time, you had the noise of the cartwheel, you had the noise of the town crier, you had the noise of the church bell, you had all of the natural sounds of you know bulls bellowing and horses horses neighing and um, and ass braying and you know people you know, going through their own natural sounds of speech and you know the belchings and the so forth. But this is really before the noise. So for example, a Lord Mayor of London in 1597 said that all speech was decorated silence. It's very difficult mm. to hear that today. We're constantly fighting against the air conditioning, you know, uh, and I mean, in most of the metropolitan communities in the world, everybody's shouting at one another, as opposed to really sitting in, you know, you hear me sitting in my note, I'm sitting in my body, I'm sharing the core of me with you, I, I hope. Yeah, absolutely, Ed, you know, Stuart, how important, and, and this is a question for everyone watching, everyone listening, how important is it for our voice to become our best first impression? 
Well, you know, for me, it's crucial. But then I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I'm a voice coach, you know, and fortunately, for the last 40 years, I've been employed by the great and the good or the not so great and not so good. And, um, you know, as with yourself, you are an empower of people. And, you know, I have my I have my own vlog platform like you have. And so we're here to disseminate information and to really evoke or elicit within people the greatest and the best and the grandest version of themselves. So I feel that voice is right at the very core of it. If I give you a taste of what I mean, you see, going way back, um, particularly going into the Elizabethan or the French or way back into the Renaissance period of Italy, the belief was in the notion of persona. Persona, which we have in the word personality. Well, persona means per through sona sound. So you mean the whole of my personality is communicated through my sound. Effectively, my essence, my, my inner fabric, my persona, my soul is communicated through sound because sound is at the core of creation. You go into any every major religion or faith system or mystical awareness into indigenous tribes and there is a total belief that all of this came about through sound just as when you shot out of your mother's birth canal you went <gasps> and you cried that great roar of life and then we go on sounding all the way through life or we don't if we're disempowered. So sound is really important. Voice is really, really important. But the difficulty is that we're confounded by noise, so we don't hear it. How uh, receptive was Princess Diana to your oh. teachings? Amazing, amazing, amazing. Was she a great student? Well, I mean, oh, she was so beautiful, so beautiful. I mean, so easy, so flexible, so pliable, so in demand of, you know, in a beautiful way, always through grace, in demand of, because she saw this as being a unique opportunity. You know, only, only 15 years prior to this experience, she knew what total disempowerment was all about, which led her to bulimia, which led her to a series of um, mental health crises. And now she was moving into a healing, which was profound. So she was feeling a level of joy, a level of expansion, a level of delight moving through her. And she wanted to share herself with the world in this way. So yeah, she was really, she was on for it. She was keen, but she was so delightful and totally in touch with her body. Well, was she positive? Uh, and looking forward to the next chapter of her life after being in the monarchy? Or was she wondering what she was going to do? Oh, no, she was emancipated. She was liberated. She was just full of glee. And, you know, smart, intuitively really smart. Not an intellectual but intuitively, empathically, really smart. And her greatest intelligence was the way that she perceived people because she could meet someone and see right through them. <laughs> and that's where her healing, you know, came in specifically useful. For example, little do we know that, and I write about it in the book, but you know, little do, little do we know, here is the book, that um, she would spend two or three nights a week when not engaged in formal occasions, just driving up to a hospital in this city, going into reception and saying, is there anybody that I can help? Is there anybody that I can sit with? And she would spend three, two, three nights a week 
evenings a week for two or three hours just sitting with people in their can you imagine lying in a hospital bed <laughs> in a mainstream general hospital and suddenly Princess Diana walks in and says, can I help? And holds your hand and looks with those extraordinary blue eyes into your eyes and says, I'm here to help. What can I do? Wow. That, that's why she's the queen of people's hearts. And was the paparazzi following her? at that time or where she found a way to get to the hospital and and do this without any fanfare she found ways of being very secretive i mean you know <laughs> she would often wear disguises i mean she would wear a wig or dark spectacles um and you know she would not drive her own car she would have somebody drive her in a beaten or beaten down old vehicle you know so it was all very very discreet yeah, there were, I, uh, twice we went to the cinema, to the movie movie theater, um, and she was in disguise. Nobody knew who she was. It was hysterical. Because I, it's <laughs> also impressive, to tell you the truth. Now, Stuart, tell us about when you knew you had to write this book. What was the stimuli? Who was it for? And you wrote it, and it was published 24 years after Diana's passing. Why did you wait so long? Well, you know, I had a completely confidential agreement with Diana that I would never speak of her um, in an untoward way. I would never give interviews to the press, etc., etc., because Diana was surrounded by a circus of paparazzi, as we know. But also, she had shared herself with a number of therapists or coaches or healers um, because she was really, you know, really heaven, heaven bent on finding a way of empowering herself. And many of them, post therapy or post the session, had taken their stories to the newspapers. So I swore that this would be completely confidential. So actually, Nobody knew that we were working together other than Mara Burney, not even Paul Burrell, who was very close to her. So Diana would always come to me. I would never go to Kensington Palace. And whenever she needed to pay me, it was normally Mara who paid me. And she always called me on a new device, which we had called a cell phone. These are completely new then in, you know, 95, 96, 97. Uh, no selfies were taken. So it was completely confidential. And I remained in, in, the, in the truth of that conviction for many years. However, in our last meeting, when we were exchanging on a very deep level, you know, her, a great friend of hers, Gianni Versace, had just been murdered and she'd been to the funeral. So she was very affected by this. And, uh, and she had a presentiment of her own death because she always felt that they would do away with me, meaning the, you know, the men in gray suits or that mm -hmm. force that, that right. exists in the world. I got it. And so I remember... You know, you know what I'm saying. So I remember her saying, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we wrote a book? But let's not do it until the children are married. And it was all completely en passant. And I registered that idea. But it wasn't until, as you were saying, you know, 20, I started writing the book, I guess, about four years ago. And it was largely as a result of working with some of my clients in Hollywood who were leading actresses who were wanting to find a way of really stepping forth and using their voices to speak about what they were experiencing in relation to the way that they had been assaulted or abused by some of the major 
individuals in Hollywood. And uh, one particular actress, I stepped forward and I said, but you're the voice of change. You know, you must step forward. And she said, wait a minute, what do you mean? And so I started to use some of the techniques that I use with Diana. Um, I showed her a list of exercises that I had that Diana and I, had, uh, and I shared. And automatically this person, who obviously will remain nameless as a result of confidentiality, um, she said, well, why don't you write a book about this? It would be really good for hashtag me too. And suddenly there it was in front of me. And I thought, right, this is what I need to do. This book is for the women and the men of the world, but the women of the world, because as we know, women are finding their voices. Yes, they are. Uh, with Diana, and, and I was thinking this, I was thinking about this a few days ago, knowing that our interview was coming up, and to think about that if Diana had lived, you know, many people make the comment that her persona, her being would have far exceeded the royal family. And was the royal family actually worried about that? I feel that they were more concerned about when she was a member of the royal family because she was impetuous and unusual and would step away from the rubricons of protocol and received a tremendous amount of criticism from the establishment. Um, I don't feel that they were concerned about her when she had left because they, they always knew that she was in complete support of the monarchy. It's just that she was also aware of the fact that it needed to be revitalized or it needed to become more innovative or it needed to change from the rather stiff uh, way of behaving. You know, as I, as I write in my book, Diana gave permission for the form of behavior that stultifies love to be reinvented for emotional aloofness to be made transparent, for starch stuffiness to be given the human face, and for feeling expression to be given its rightful place, and for dismissive criticism to be turned into discerning care. So that's really what she was about. And uh, of course, we're seeing the great shifts now in the British royal family. And God bless her. I mean, the Queen has done the most amazing job, as we know, for the last 70 years, was in complete receipt and respect of Diana. I mean, she and Diana had a very, very close relationship, including post the divorce. Really? Uh, and, but when the, queen, when the Queen passes, which she's looking very frail, the whole of the monarchy will change. Well, so was the relationship that Diana had with the queen, maybe others in the royal family, was that relationship different than what the press put out for all of us to believe? Because they, they, oh. the press was just creating friction and saying, you know, queen this, Prince Charles that, Camilla, the list just goes on and on. And so, you know, a lot of people believe everything they read in the press. I don't. I think most of the celebrity press is all clickbait. But you're showing a different side of Diana that she had a close relationship with the Queen. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. And, you know, she spoke about it during the Martin Bashir interview. But what she also said was there are three people in this marriage. And she felt outraged by that, even though within the European aristocracy, it was always an agreeable force that the husband had his lovers. But what she said as the modern woman that she was, liberating the conviction of her own power, why should I 
remain silent about the man about the man that I love being dishonest. That just did not compute with her modern sensibility, and I feel the same thing today. You know that uh, um, when we look into the nature of the relationship between William and Harry, the British and Australian press, and to a certain to a certain extent the United States press, is saying that they have a profound rift. They don't have a rift at all. What they have is an agreeable disagreement about their values, but they're still talking to one another. There's no rift. I, I mean, this is the same between myself and my brother. I mean, my brother are regularly falling out, and then we're regularly falling back in love with one another. You know, that's what siblings do. It's a family. No it's family, right? And yeah. no longer is there that sacred, silent vow of their grief keeping them silent, do you see? That, well, that whole talisman has been broken because of the love that they've discovered in their extraordinary women. Well, Stuart, then let's, let's talk about this for a second. How did Diana affect her sons, William and Harry? Well, she taught, she taught them to be absolutely truthful. Hmm totally transparent. So what is your take on, you know, Harry and Meghan and William and Kate, which I believe that the uh, British public can't wait for them to be king and queen? Well, yeah, I mean, they're doing a very good job. They're very sweet. They're very beautiful. They always do the right thing. Um, and you know they're 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 quite staggering in their presence, aren't they? There's this, there's an archetypal quality about them, which means that they they appear to be invested with certain characteristics, certain virtues, a degree of sensibility that leads them in the direction of being really noble, gracious, sexy, modern, in touch young people with three beautiful children. I mean, well, Kate's that, adorable, isn't she? Just well, adorable. Well, I was going to ask because doesn't Kate kind of give us a glimpse of elements of Diana? Does she? Yes. I guess so. Why not? Why don't I agree? I don't. I can't be contrary to that. Um, uh, I feel that Kate is safe with the role that she plays but with um, great due diligence, you know, that she's immensely sensitive to the pressures that are there. But at the same time, whereas Harry and Meghan have been so independent in their impetuosity for another completely different reason, which I'd love to drop in in a moment, yes. that, that Kate and William are being extremely agreeable because they don't want to create the ruction that is being created by the British press in association with Harry and Meghan. The British press are vitriolic about both people. And all they've done through the lens of psychotherapy is to be honest about what they were experiencing. If he had not discovered that psychotherapy, I don't believe he would be around today. He was seriously, seriously unwell with a tremendous anger about the nature of his mother's passing. And when you're talking about Harry. Harry. Mm. You know, you know, I read in the beginning that, you know, Harry's idea, which 
I kind of agreed with in the very beginning where he, he wanted to continue his royal duties, but at the same time have that pathway to do some things on his own, including creating his own wealth. And I didn't see a problem with that. So was the press part of the problem and instigating a lot of the trouble that we see today? Oh, completely, completely. You know, because- if we, if, we go, if, we, if we go back in the history of all the press that they both received, when we think of the, the total acceptance of Meghan as a potential bride, the absolute applauding of the very ecumenical wedding service, which obviously had a, represent a representation of both African-American or Afro-Caribbean peoples and Caucasian peoples. Everything was celebrated in an extraordinary way. But then we began to see that criticism came in relation to Meghan when she became pregnant, because one particular press um, outlet here said that what happens if the baby looks like a monkey? That was the first thing. And then it escalated and escalated and was led by a number of major media magnets um, whose names can be obviously <laughs> unmentioned, but we all know who I'm talking about. And that was purely and simply because when, when Meghan met this individual for the first time, there was a conversation that was inappropriate that took place. And Meghan drew an energy boundary, which was not accepted by the other person. Mm. How would you define Meghan's presence, her person? How would you, how would you define her? She's a really good Republican. <laughs> really? <laughs> I would have She's never really good. I would have never figured that out by the way that the press portrays Harry and, and Megan. Uh, do you believe that um, the door is still open for them to return to royal duty? Oh, always. Always, always, always. But they won't because they're obviously really involved in a very exciting um, and aspirational trajectory of their own. So it won't, it, you know, it's just simply not necessary. And they'll both be much happier living in, oh gosh, I can only speak in ethos because we know that there are social dilemmas. <laughs> I'm being very euphemistic here about what's taking place geopolitically and economically within the United States at the moment. It's a great, great nation as we know, but there are certain aspects of its energy, I mean, I'm speaking very simplistically, that need to be reinvestigated so that yeah. we get back to the original premise of what the great constitution is all about. So that's what I speak to when I say that Meghan is a, is a first-class Republican. What does this mean? Well, it means firstly that she is an independent thinker and an intelligent, discerning thinker that is always aware of how whatever her own creative endeavor is, that she is in service to the people of her nation. So that's what I mean by a really good Republican. She believes in freedom of speech. She believes in the democratic um, social principles of what it is to be part of a great republic like the United States of America, etc., etc. Well, in reality, now that I hear you talking and I'm hearing a lot of 
absolute truth and clearing out the clutter from all the clickbait that the press creates and puts out there. So with Harry, was Harry's idea, uh, his vision, was really wanting to carry on what Diana was doing, uh, in essence? He, he is his mother's son. Um, she was vulnerable, but immensely courageous. She was uh, immensely sensitive in an empathic way, but so impetuous. She would often move without thinking, which I personally relate to. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a tourist boy, so I tend to be a little bit like a bull in the china shop when I'm roused. Um, and sometimes we, you know, we just we we say things that that we, we that we have misgivings about afterwards. So we have to step forward and apologize. Um, Diana was very much in this way, and Harry is. You know, he was Im immensely impetuous. When the cap of his anger came off, and he was able to heal all of the, the, you know, should we say, the sensitivities or the neuroses that had actually built over many, many years for not being able to express the howling grief that was held within his body that automatically began to see a way of being able to transmute all of that into being a world servant. And that's exactly what Diana was doing. So the fact that they're able to step forward and be so courageous and bold and intelligent about mental health and speak of it from personal experience, which I feel that we all experience when we hear them speak about it. Mm. Now, we also know that, of course, the press is not interested in this level of transparency. They're not interested. They consider it to be woo-woo or far-fetched or whatever. Personally, I feel that's largely to do with the fact that there is a tremendous amount of neuroses within the function of the competitive nature of what it is to be a media personality today. And this is a sweeping generalization. So what we do is we project our own negative psyche onto the situation or the individual. Uh, I've noticed it here because when my book um, came into press here um, in the middle of last year, that uh, the British press more or less left it alone except for one newspaper, that will remain nameless, who wrote about me saying that I was Hannibal Lecter and that I claimed to have trained or coached Diana. I claimed to have done this, even though I have a pedigree which is, <laughs> um, you know, which is quite illustrious. Um, I'm very fortunate. I've, met, I've worked with some extraordinary people, all who, who, who have taught me. Um, and so I thought, wow, whereas in the United States of America, I've, I think I've given about 180 press interviews, and they've all been blisteringly wonderful. That's a very English thing to say. <laughs> and here I am meeting you, Ward, and you're being so wonderful. Oh, you're such a gentleman. You're being so gracious and open to the possibility of what I'm sharing. Well, I am because, for me, I just want to know the truth. You know, a lot of people sit there on their phones all day long, and they, they swipe up, swipe right, they look at clickbait, they take it at face value, they easily believe everything they read, but for me, being on the media side, there's a lot of crap out there and a lot of lies, a lot of fake narratives that are being put out there just to either rile up the public or maybe ruin someone's reputation. So here in America, you know, we look at Harry and Meghan as being spoiled and and negative and manipulative and and in essence they're probably not they want to find their own voice and believe that they have something to offer 
even within the monarchy. Am I saying that correct? Absolutely. And most of the information, I would say 90% of the information that we garner from media is all fictitious. It's all been made up. You know, I had a great insight into this because during last year when the book came out, the American press were hounding me for information. And I met a lot of beautiful, beautiful young people who were turning out bulletins, sometimes six or seven bulletins a day, and they have to be considerable of in the area of about 500 words. Well, if you are not actually available to any of the information or the information is not available to you, what happens is you make it up because you are up, you have to turn in that bulletin, otherwise your senior editor is going to be after your rear end, you know? And so uh, I met so many young people who said, oh, thank you, thank oh my God, this is amazing. The information you're giving me, you know, because I have a history with the royal family in the sense of the fact that my father worked for the British royal family. So I was brought up in all of that. My father worked for, the, for Prince Philip um, for 35 years. You know, they met during the war and blah, blah, blah. It's another story in itself. Um, and so um, I, I, have a, I have connections in the royal household still that uh, I, I honor with great confidentiality. But I take information to illuminate the conviction of what we're talking about rather than to distort the reality of these wonderful people's lives. Well, you know, I've noticed, you know, I don't know full-blown royal protocol from century to century. But in the last, let's say, 25 years since Diana's passing, the Queen has made some uh, adjustments to royal protocol concerning lineage. Uh, Normally, uh, Charles, I guess, technically wouldn't be able to ascend the throne and Camilla wouldn't be called Queen Consort, so to speak, in the past. But now that would be the case. Why is the queen making some of these changes? Oh, she moves with the times. Really? She's really aware. You know, it's quite staggering, Ward, when we look at the history of these last 70 years, what this woman has witnessed firsthand. The extraordinary, each decade, there has been an extraordinary, you know, when you think when she first became the queen in 53, the whole of the British Empire was dissolved. The colonies were released and they, if they wished to be vote, vote themselves into the British Commonwealth, they did. But the co- colonial rule ceased. That's where it started. And then it goes on. And we think of the 60s. You and I remember the 60s with the extraordinary social emancipation of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And, you know, there we were wearing hair down to our shoulders it's a, and smoking pot. And that's, she's witnessed a tremendous amount of change. And of course, now we have the Infotech Highway, which she's witnessed and uses a cell phone, is on Zoom. I mean, this is extraordinary. She's She's a really cool lady and is aware of the power, the value, the importance, the essence of tradition and heritage and wants the vital, the vital aspects, the essential aspects, the quintessential aspects of tradition and heritage within the monarchy to be used as stabilizing influences within societies that are growing and evolving in boundless ways at this time. Well, let me ask you this question because I want to kind of get into post Diana a bit, but about Diana, 
Uh, if you don't mind me asking, where were you when you heard that uh, Diana was in an accident? I was in New Mexico on holiday. And what was, what was the thoughts going through your mind when you heard the news? Well, fr fr friends said, let's go for brunch. So we went for brunch. And uh, we went into this really, really hu humble cafeteria in Taos, New Mexico. And one of the local guys was sitting there drinking cappuccino and he m mistakenly put his foot out and I nearly tripped over it. But what happened is as I, as I refound my balance is that he was reading the USA Today and on the front cover I saw Diana dead. Hmm. And a sound came out of my body that I've never ever heard before or after. It was a mixture of a scream and uh, an animal howling. I was so shocked. So I ran, excusing myself like a good British gentleman, I ran and around the corner was a church, a Roman Catholic church. Unfortunately, there were no services. I went rushing into the church and the priest just opened his arms and I fell into his arms and wept and wept and wept. It was the most extraordinary situation. I was deeply shocked. It took me seven years to get over her departure, as it did for most of us. As William and Harry, do you blame the press for her death? Um, no, not at all. I feel that the hounding of her, the paparazzi hounding, I feel that that was an incremental feature in relation to her eventual demise, but there was something else going on which today has been unproven. Um, I allude to it in my book, and I speak about the place where she died, which is very unusual. I can give you a tidbit, if you like. Yes, please um, do. I, I please discovered do. about five, five years after her, her, after her passing that I was working in, in Paris with one of my CEOs, and he just happened to, I'd helped him with a merger, and the deal was really, you know, really succinct and profound, and he was very pleased. So he said, let's have tea, and then I'll, 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 my chauffeur will drive us across town and take you to the station so you can jump on the train. And, because, uh, you know, the Euro Tunnel was, um, um, actually it was not five years after her death, it was like about 10 years after her death. And as we were driving across Paris, there was the tunnel, the, the, the Punta Almar tunnel, and I'd never been there. I hadn't dared to go there. So there we are going down through this tunnel. And he looked at me and he said, wait a minute, you, you worked with Diana, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he said, this is where she died as we whizzed past the 13th pillar. And he said, you know, in Roman times, this was the temple of Diana. Oh my goodness. So I've traced that, and he was absolutely accurate, but I've traced it further back. And wow. so there is a connection, there is a very, which I write about in the book. So there's a tidbit for you. Yes, there is. And ladies and gentlemen, you, you absolutely need to read the book, Diana, The Voice of Change. Uh, Stuart, um, my goodness gracious. Uh, you know, after her, well, at the end, when she died, uh, what were your thoughts on? And a lot of, and the Queen got criticized for this, waiting so long before greeting the public and coming out uh, personally to see all the flowers at the gates. And, and, and there was a lot of criticism there. Why did you think it took her so long? Oh, she was completely consumed in trying to help the boys. 
completely con for the first time in her life she didn't think about the nation she thought about her own family for the first time and then was steadfast she is a Taurus so she, she's a bull you know so she gets really steadfast and then of course she was talked into you know can you please come to London by Tony Blair who was then the Prime Minister and um, reluctant she agreed but as soon as she appeared in London she realized that this was extremely significant that she is the matriarch of the nation need to be seen by her people and um, she won them over immediately so there was a lot of criticism during the day and you know other features to do with the fact that um, the royal protocol says that a flag cannot high, uh, fly half-mast on the flagpole of Buckingham Palace unless it's to do with the monarch. And the British people were aggrieved by this. Well, that was another thing that changed because when the Queen arrived in London the day before the funeral on September the 6th that year, um, automatically the, her, the royal ensign, the Queen's ensign went out. But the following day, when the Queen left to go to Westminster Abbey, the Union Jack flew at half-mast. So all of these reparations were made. Was the royal family amazed by the size of the crowd that came out to publicly see Diana off? Staggered, aghast, dumbfounded. And then, of course, all of the reports that came that 3.5 billion people were affected, which was then uh, almost two-thirds the population of the planet. It was staggering. And London, the United Kingdom, went through a collective nervous breakdown. It was profound. I've just written about this, actually, because the book has done so well that we're reprinting it this summer for, uh, as a commemorative edition for her 25th anniversary of passing. And of course, the Queen's Jubilee, Platinum Jubilee. And so I've written a prologue of about 7,000 words, which is called when the, the Seven Days When the World Stood Still, which is about those seven days. And it's quite staggering, you know, because I went back into rediscovering what had taken place. I was in New Mexico, as I said, but of course, as soon as this happened, the following day, I was a on a plane back to the United Kingdom. I had to be part of the whole thing. And so, you know, through my contacts, was in St. James's Palace, was in Clarence House, observing what all, all of the things that were taking place. What, Staggering. What is your greatest memory of Diana? Her beautiful eyes and her hilarious laughter. How great was her sense of humor? Oh, hysterical. I mean, just hysterical. You know, often finding the trivia, the absurdities of life, just hysterical. Particularly when people were being deeply, deeply, deeply austere and profound in very formal situations. And she would just start giggling. And if she would start giggling, she would just go on and on and on. I tend to be a little bit like this. One of the things that many directors said about me during my early years as an actor was, would you stop? You know, it's how in theater parlance it's called corpsing. I would just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And she was hysterical. Sometimes we'd forget what we were laughing at. It was, you know, that, that extraordinary mirth that just goes waving through one. 
Well, that joy that you would see uh, either video or photographs of Diana where she's smiling and, and there's laughter there. Um, so many people were able to gravitate to that because it, they saw this human side of someone in the monarchy and not where the walls are up, everything is stiff. But here is this shining light, uh, a, a relatable shining light that, yeah. uh, my, you know, I can't even imagine. Have you ever thought about what the magnitude would be right now if Diana was still alive? Oh, it'd be extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Can you imagine? She would be a singular peace envoy. And, you know, the, the extraordinary thing was, although she was very humble and vulnerable, and she was a woman, you know what I mean by that from a sexual politics point of view, but she, I, I, I saw her entrain charm potentates, prime ministers, presidents, leading CEOs. I mean, powerful men would become like putty in her hands when she walked in. Her charisma, her charm, her beauty, which of course was outstanding, as we know, you, would affect them so much. Well, do you think uh, if Diana had lived, do you think she would have ever stepped her toe into politics? And would she ever, would she have ever become prime minister? No. No, 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 no. But she would have become a major influence in social emancipation. There is no doubt. But always through charitable endeavor. Always within the circumference of heart activity, not in the domain of intellectual activity. And to be a good politician today, this, this compass needs to work really effectively. That was not Diana's scene. But if you gave her something to do with the heart, caring compassionately for individuals, inspiring individuals to great endeavors, maybe if they'd been through, you know, a terrible accident of losing a limb through landmine usage, whatever it may be, what Harry is doing with Invictus, Diana would have been there assisting as an iconic emblem, inspiring, aspiring, leading people forward. She would be a mighty peace envoy. It'd be very interesting, for example, if Diana, figuratively speaking, reappeared and walked up to Mr. Putin and say, said, I think we need to stop this, don't you? I wonder what Putin would do. She had that much power. She had that much impression upon people. And like you said, and I love the fact that in the very beginning of this interview, you said, Diana could look right through someone. And that is an amazing uh, empowerment for someone that for her, she would use it for something positive and not negative. Mm. Well, she had experienced deep, deep, deep wounding. She knew what her own relative pain was, that quality of suffering. And so, it, you know, therefore one becomes an empath. She didn't become a megalomaniac, she became an empath and used that deep suffering for a purpose of alleviating the suffering of others. And that was her divine mission. Was she spiritual in any way? Oh, deeply, deeply. 
deeply, deeply. I mean, spirituality is a movement back to wholeness. She completely believed in holism, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And so, you know, feeling is the language of the soul. And so she was really um, looking into the whole substance of what the arena of her own feeling state was, but from a very free point of view, not from a withheld or contracted or introverted point of view, but in terms of the expression of um, her feeling, her feeling currency. Oh yeah, absolutely. She was deeply spiritual and was constantly looking for inspiration from the great writers, you know, from the great yogics, from Rumi, from the empowerment books that were being circulated at that time in the late 80s and early 90s when we all suddenly realized we need to do something about our lives because they weren't healthy. What do you think Diana would be thinking right now that if she was here and we've all noticed the changes in the monarchy, a lot of those changes that I think we may should give credit to Diana for, even though they come 20 years later or so, uh, what would she think about Charles ascending the throne and what would the monarch, what will the monarchy look like when Charles becomes king? If he becomes king. If he becomes king. Well, you know, I'm taken back to the words that she used in the Martin Bashir interview, where she was very open about the fact that he was not ready to be king. Now, of course, that was through the lens of something that took place 20, 26, 27 years ago. Um, I wonder if she would agree to, you know, Charles is obviously muscled up and he's an extraordinary man. Um, maybe she would she would actually say no i'm going to celebrate this what diana was was an extraordinary lover she loved and loved and loved and loved and loved and loved so i believe that she would be in complete honoring of the the relationship between charles and camilla although at that time of course it was the substance of great antipathy for her mm. so do you think but, that you said if he becomes king do you think there's a possibility that uh, William will take the throne before Charles? I, I, don't, I don't feel that Charles really wants that level of responsibility. I agree with that. I, 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 feel, I feel that when the Queen, this is very prophetic, and it's not based on any substance of constitutional law, but I feel that when the Queen goes, there is the recognition in the British people and also within the British Parliament that something radical needs to happen with the iconic nature of what royalty means today. Um, moving, as it were, more towards a republic, a republic than how it has been for thousands of years. Um, if we look into some of the other European monarchies, there are some excellent examples. For example, Frederick and Mary of Denmark. I mean, really excellent, the way that they are able to fulfill the dignity and the office of what it is to be a royal personage, but at the same time, they're very accessible from a social point of view in terms of what's happening within their nation through the general public. And Mary is, after all, from Tasmania. She's not, she's not Danish. So that's an excellent, but you know, they conduct themselves with such grace, with such dignity, with such ease, but they're really cool people. I feel that Kate and, and William would do the same thing, do you see, that they're moving into that status. So let's see, constitutional law could, could be rewritten. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see from this point on. And, you know, I, I'm very happy that 
You know, the queen made it to the Jubilee. I mean, 70 years, you cannot take that away from her. I think she has served the monarchy to the absolute best and pinnacle of her ability. And uh, I think she's one of the strongest women in history. I absolutely agree. Astonishing. And, you know, yesterday there were televisual reports of her because she's not been well. She's had really bad COVID. And also she evidently has mobility issues, which means that there's something not quite right with her pelvis or with her right hip. And so she is using a stick. But yesterday, there she was getting out of a car, walking into one of the major railway termini in London to open up a very, very deep seated subway system, which is called the Elizabeth Line which, you know, the city of London has been affected in its underground workings for the last seven or eight years. And it's a system of rail transportation for the future, you know, so everything is high tech. And there she was opening it and talking to people and getting onto a subway train and using a ticket and a magnetic ticket and so forth and so really fascinating. I've, I've seen grown men say, well, it's only, she's only, in a, a, she's like granny, isn't she? And then as soon as the queen comes along, they start, <laughs> their knees start to knock together. She has a force. Yeah. She has this extraordinary charismatic field around her, but it's one of great grace. It's aloof, it's distant, it's unusual, but at the same time, there is something awe-inspiring. There's something wondrous about her. Well, I've always kind of pictured uh, Queen Elizabeth as having a killer sense of humor. Would you agree? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I can remember doing some really naughty things as a child in Buckingham Palace, um, because I remember, for example, that the palace stationery was absolutely amazing because it was a certain thickness. So you could fold it into paper aeroplanes and put little trajectory, you know, little um, aerofoils on the back. It was just the right thickness. And then if you stood at the top of a grand staircase, uh, it would just go on and on and on down these huge ground galleries. And I remember doing this when I shouldn't have been doing it. I was like seven or eight. And I remember one day um, here, uh, and I uh, doing this, and I heard this voice saying, what are you doing? And here was Her Majesty. And she said, come here. And so I went over and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm so sorry, Your Majesty, bowing and da, da, da. And she said, oh, don't worry, come in, come in, come into my sitting room. So I went and spent an hour with her. And I remember she, she had tea, she ordered tea, and I had hot orange juice, which I thought was a very, very strange thing to give anyway, and chocolate biscuits. And we talked for about an hour. She took her shoes off, put her feet up on the sofa, switched the TV on. We had fun for an hour. And then she picked up, she said, oh, I better let your father know where you are, and picked up the telephone and said, Joe, Jumbo, Stuart's with me. And there is my father saying, your majesty, what? <laughs> and then he came, he came, you know, I remember things like that. I mean, she's hysterically funny. Wow. That, you know, I like the queen. I think she is a, I just think she's cool. I'm going to put it like that. <clears throat> um, because you can see, besides all of the pomp and circumstance, there's a human being there who has ruled with such incredible grace. Uh, and some very, I mean, in 70 years, there have been some very difficult times. And, you know... <sighs> 
not everyone's going to do, do it correctly or do it according to the press or the public, but she's always come out on top. Mm. 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 I, I, I absolutely cohere. I think she's a very remarkable human being. And my own life, which is almost as, 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 um, as long as her, her, her ascendancy to the throne, um, I thank God that she was there as an icon to measure ourselves against because she, we have never seen her shadow. We have never seen her darkness. We have always seen her grace. Mm. We've seen her be aloof, shy. She's immensely shy, which is where the aloofness comes from. Of course. I would have well never, as, I would have never, I would have never seen that or even thought that she was shy. Yeah, deeply shy. I mean, there was, uh, over this past weekend, was the Royal Windsor Horse Show. And of course, she loves horses. So there she was getting out of her Range Rover and walking towards the, the, the stand or the marquee where she was sitting. And um, this wonderful personality who's known very well here, who looks actually a little bit like yourself, Wade, um, called Alan Titchmars. He, you know, he's a very famous TV personality here. He said, thank you, Your Majesty, for being here. And we're very pleased that you gave preference to this rather than the state opening of parliament. And she just went like this. I mean, it was a very, very funny moment. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Pierce, the author of Diana, The Voice of Change, a book that you absolutely have to read to know the truth. Uh, forget the clickbait. Forget the, the celebrity news that you read on your phone or online. Stuart has firsthand knowledge, the relationship with Princess Diana, even the queen, as you have seen. And of course, as Stuart has led on to all of us at the 25th uh, anniversary commemorative edition of his book is coming. And I cannot wait to have that particular book, Stuart. But I want to ask you about you. What is next for Stuart Pierce? Oh, I couldn't possibly reveal that. <laughs> what is next? Thank you, Wade. Actually, what is next is that this book will become another book. Diana, wish you were here. Mm. And the development of a series of seminars or workshops, which will be called the Diana Heart Path for the women of the world to experience communion, constructive creative processes, and, and the possibility of being able to share what it is to be aroused today as a strong woman. There's a wonderful proverb from the Japanese that says, when the women's voices are aroused, the mountains move. Mm, I love that. And Stuart, when, when that all comes together, you have, you, you have an open invitation to my show anytime. Bless you. Thank you. Well, Wade, when the commemorative issue comes out, I will sign a copy and make sure you get it. Please do. And, and I, I find it funny. I find it endearing. I, even when you call me Wade and my name is Ward, I love it because so many people call me that anyway. Uh, but uh, I apologize. Hey, no worries. So sign it, Ward. <laughs> I will. I will. I will. I'm going to write this down. I do apologize. No, there's no reason to apologize. You inappropriate you, of me. I, I'm uh, sorry. No, no problem at all. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have 
received. You have heard, you have watched in-depth truth of the woman that changed the world. And uh, sorry, Stuart, sometimes I get emotional thinking about, about these people who have such power, such presence, and such an extraordinary life that was cut short, that we'll always dream about what if, and, and what Diana would be today. And hopefully we've touched on some of those things that uh, we know without a shadow of a doubt, she would be absolutely extraordinary. I'm very touched by the way that you're moved, because this is the way that I feel about her, that she was, she was all the currency of the heart, that the heart is the seat of the soul. And so it was all about heart exchange. True goodness, you know, which means that, of course, she could also be wonderfully naughty, but never outrageously cruel at all. Yeah, she, she definitely had the hearts of the people. Uh, the world mourned. I think the world still does. Yes, well, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because her spirit is so here. Yeah. You know, when we looked last year, okay, there was the arousal of my book, and you know, the American press was, I was saying earlier, you know, were immensely entertaining of the, of the whole nature of the book. And then, of course, we had the Broadway musical, and then we had the Spencer movie, and you know, Vogue magazine, and Tatler magazine, and the New Yorker were full of photographs of Diana using her as a a fashion icon fascinating you know and of course tina tina brown has just brought out her book called the palace papers where there is again information evinced about diana and you know what staggers me is that the young ones who weren't even alive both in the us and in the uk their mothers who were alive have asked me if i would give them a voice session which i have and when i'm talking about 18 19 year olds so kids that are about to graduate from high school and one of them here in the United Kingdom, and one in Washington, D.C. I read your book, it was absolutely amazing, and I've taken it to my principal and said, this needs to be compulsory reading for all the kids in the school. I mean, these are kids that weren't even alive when Diana was alive. I find that fascinating. So her spirit has this eternality about it. And I, I believe that uh, fundamentally that that energy is going to go on and on and on and be an illuminating presence through the great changes that evidently are taking place in our world. The shadow is out. So you know, with the shadow out, hopefully we're getting healthier about what is really true and what is, tr what is truly rightful. How can we exist co-creatively in this world together without constantly shafting each other? Well, you know, without getting yeah. crude. Um, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I actually look forward to one day, hopefully, that you will write a book of, of the things that you have experienced, things that you have learned with voice, with presence, to help all of us uh, become better people, to become more poised, uh, and as with Diana, to be more empowered, to be more kind, to be more authentic in a very humbling way to mankind. Well, thank you, Wade. I actually have. <laughs> I have a book that's called The Alchemy of Voice. 
But you give me inspiration in this moment because what I need to do, that was written 15, 20 years ago. What I need to do is to revivify and write the voice of presence. Well, please do. And again, and will, I'll, I, I'll be coming and speaking to you and saying, would you like to contribute? That would be fun. I get really, really fantastic people to make contributions, including who, who knows, Mr. Biden maybe would give me a line or two. <laughs> well, I would be, I would absolutely be honored to contribute to that. And I look forward to the voice of presence and ladies and gentlemen, uh, what a presence you have experienced in today's show. Stuart Pierce, like I said in the very beginning, there is no equal to this gentleman, the author of Diana, The Voice of Change. You can find the book online at Amazon. You can find the book in just about every bookstore. But it is a book that, you know, it's not just adding it to your collection, you need to actually read it because this is a book that's not just about Diana, but as you read it, you're going to learn some things about yourself and things that are inside you. Well, it's time for those things to come out. And Stuart Pierce, I want to thank you so much for honoring us with your time and your presence via London. And again, you are always welcome back. Bless you. Oh, those words were absolutely wonderful. I will cherish them in my heart. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Wade. You're an absolute gentleman. I've, en I've enjoyed being with you so much. So I look forward to our next time. And hello to all the listeners and viewers. Hey, thank you so much, Stuart. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this.